This week's podcastle is brought to you by Audible.com. Please visit www.audiblepodcast.com slash castle for your free audiobook download. Podcastle, episode 96, from March 23rd, 2010. Love Among the Talos by Elizabeth Bear. Hi, welcome to Podcastle, the weekly fantasy podcast. I'm Alistair, and this week's story is Love Among the Talos by Elizabeth Bear. Elizabeth is a fiercely prolific author of novels and short stories. She's had two stories appear previously on Escape Pod, the Something Dreaming Game, and Tideline, which was also a Hugo nominee, and she's also one of the team behind possibly my third or fourth favourite thing ever. Shadow Unit is the story of the FBI team who deal with more anomalous crimes. It's more criminal minds than the X-Files, a really delicate, well-constructed piece of horror fiction that utterly deserves your attention. Oh, and it's free. Uh, She can be found at elizabethbear.com, and Shadow Unit, which I cannot recommend highly enough, can be found at shadowunit.org. Your narrator this week is Diane Severson, a multi-talented soprano, musician, and reader whose work can be found at divadianes.blogspot.com. So wrap up warm, because the tower is tall, the view is good, and we have a long way to go. Love Among the Talus by Elizabeth Bear You cannot really keep a princess in a tower. Not if she has no brothers and must learn statecraft and dancing and riding and poisons and potions and the passage of arms so that she may eventually rule. But you can do the next best thing. In the land of the Shining Empire, in a small province south of the city of Messaline and beyond the Great Salt Desert, a princess with a tip-tilted nose lived with her mother, Holun Katun, the Dowager Queen. The princess, whose name it happens was Nilufer, stood tall and straight as an ivory pole, and her shoulders were broad out of fashion from the pull of her long oak-white bow. Her dowry would no doubt compensate for any perceived lack of beauty. Her hair was straight and black, as smooth and cool as water, and even when she did not ride with her men-at-arms, She wore split padded skirts and quilted panelled robes of silk satin, all emerald and jade and black and crimson embroidered with gold and white chrysanthemums. She needed no tower, for she was like unto a tower in her person, a fastness as sure as the mountains she bloomed beside, her cool reserve and mocking half-lidded glances the battlements of a glacial virginity." Her province compassed foothills, and also those mountains which were called steelies of the sky. And while its farmlands were not naturally verdant, its mineral wealth was abundant. At the moderate elevations, ancient terraced slopes had been engineered into low-walled, boggy paddies dotted with unhappy oxen. Women toiled there, bent under straw hats, the fermenting vegetation and glossy leeches which adhered to their sinewy calves unheeded. Farther up, the fields gave way to slopes of scree, and at the bottoms of the sheer, rising faces of the mountains opened the nurturing mouths of the mines. The mines were not worked by men. The miners were tailless, living boulders with great stone-grinding mouths. 
The talus consumed ore and plutonic and metamorphic rocks alike. The sandstones, slates, schists, and shales they found to be generally bereft of flavor and nutrition, but they would gnaw through them to obtain better, and excreted sand and irregular nuggets of refined metal. The living rocks were gentle, stolid, unconcerned with human life, although casualties occurred sometimes among the human talus herders, when their vast insensate charges wholly or partially scoured over them. They were peaceful, though, as they grazed through stone, and their wardens would often lean against their rough sides, enjoying the soothing vibrations caused by the grinding of their gizzards, which were packed with the hardest of stones. Which is to say, corundum, rubies and sapphires, and sometimes diamonds, polished by ceaseless wear, until they attained the sheen of tumbled jewels or river rock. Of course, the talus had to be sacrificed to retrieve those, so it was done only in husbandry, or times of economic hardship or unforeseen expense, or to pay the tithe to the Kagan, the Khan of Khans, might he live forever, who had conquered Nilufer's province and slain her father and brother when Nilufer was but a child in the womb. There had been no peace before the Kagan, now the warring provinces could war no longer, and the bandits were not free to root among the spoils like battle ravens. Under the peace of the Khanate and protection of the Kagan's armies, the bandit lords were almost kept under control. So they were desperate, and they had never been fastidious. When they caught one of the talus, they slaughtered it and butchered the remains for jewels and gold and steel. As has been mentioned, the princess of the land had no brothers, and the Khatun, finding it inexpedient to confine her only daughter until marriage, as is the custom of overzealous guardians in any age, preferred to train her to a terrifying certainty of purpose, and to surround her with the finest men-at-arms in the land. To the princess, and to her troops of archers and swordsmen, not incidentally, fell the task of containing the bandit hordes. In recent years the bandit tribes had fallen under the sway of a new leader, a handsome, strong-limbed man, who some said had been a simple talus herder in his youth, and others said was a Kanzade, a son of the Kagan, or the son in hiding of one of the Kagan's vanquished enemies, who were many. Over the course of time, he brought the many disparate tribes of bandits together under one black banner, and taught them to fletch their arrows with black feathers. Whether it was the name he had been given at the cradle-board, none knew, but what he called himself was Temel. To say that Nilufer could not be kept in a tower implies that she did not dwell in one, and that, of course, would be untrue. Her mother's palace had many towers, and one of those, the tallest and whitest of the lot, was entirely Nilufer's own. As has been noted, the Khatun's province was small, really no more than a few broad plateaus and narrow valleys, and so she had no need of more than one palace. But, as has also been described, the Khatun's province was wealthy, and so that palace was lavish, and the court that dwelled within it thrived. Nilufer, as befitted a princess who would some day rule, maintained her own court within and adjacent to her mother's. This retinue was made up in part of attendants appointed by the Khatun, a tutor of letters, a tutor of sciences, a tutor of statecraft and numbers, a dancing master, a master of hawk and horse and hound, 
a pair of chaperones, one old and smelling of sour mare's milk, and the other middle-aged and stern. Three monkish warrior women who had survived the burning of their convent by the Kagan some seventeen years before, and so come into the Katun's service, and in part of Nilufer's own few retainers and gentlewomen, none of whom would Nilufer call friend. And then, of course, there was the witch, who came and went and prophesied and slept and ate as she pleased, as might a cat. On summer evenings, seeking mates, the tailors crept from the mines to sing great eerie harmonies like the wails of wetted crystal. Nilufer, if she was not otherwise engaged, could hear them from her tower window. Sometimes she would reply, coaxing shrill satiny falls of music from the straight white bone of her reed flute. Sometimes she would even play for them on the one that was made of silver. Late one particular morning in spring, Nilufer turned from her window six towering stories above the rocky valley. The sun was only now stretching around the white peaks of the mountains, though the grey twilight sky had been enough to see by for hours. Nilufer had already ridden out that morning with the men-at-arms and the three monkish women, and had practiced her archery on the practice stumps, and on a group of black-clad bandits, slaying four of seven. Now, dressed for ease in loose garments protected by a roll-sleeved smock, she stood before an easel, a long, pale bamboo brush dipped in rich black ink disregarded in her right hand as she examined her medium. The paper was absorbent, thick, soft and not glossy. It would draw the ink well, but might feather. All right for art, for a watercolor wash or a mountainscape where a certain vagueness and misty indirection might avail, but describe a spell, or a letter of diplomacy, she would have chosen paper glazed lightly with clay to hold a line crisply. Nilufer turned to the witch. Are you certain, old mother? The witch, curled on a low stool beside the fire although the day was warm, lifted her head so her wiry gray braids slid over the motley fur and feathers of her epaulets. The cloak she huddled under might be said to be gray, but that was at best an approximation. Rather, it was a patchwork thing, topes and tans and greys and pewters, bits of homespun wool and rabbit fur and fox fur all sewed together until the witch resembled nothing so much as a lichen-crusted granite boulder. The witch showed tea-stained pegs of teeth when she smiled. She was never certain. "'Write me a love spell,' she said. "'The ink is too thin,' Nilufer answered. "'The ink is too thin for the paper. It will feather.' The quality of the paper is irrelevant to your purpose, the witch said. You must use the tools at hand as best you can, for this is how you will make your life, your highness. Nilufer did not turn back to her window and her easel, though the sun had finally surmounted the peaks behind her and slanted light suffused the valley. I do not care to scribe a love spell. There is no man I would have love me, old mother." The witch made a rude noise and turned back to the fire, her lids drawing low over eyes that had showed cloudy when the dusty light crossed them. "'You will need to know the how of it when you are Katun, and you are married. It will be convenient to command love then, your highness.' "'I will not marry for love,' said the princess, cold and serene as the mountains beyond her." Your husband's love is not the only love it may be convenient to command when you are Katun. Scribe the spell. 
The witch did not glance up from the grate. The princess did not say, But I do not care to be Katun. It would have been a wasted expenditure of words. Nilufer turned back to her easel. She must have jerked her brush at the paper, for the ink had spattered the page, the scattered droplets like soot on a quartz rock feathered there. The princess did not sleep alone. Royalty has not the privilege of privacy, but she had her broad white bed to herself, the sheets and feather bed tucked neatly over the planks, her dark hair stark against the snowy coverlet. She lay on her back, her arms folded, as composed for slumber as for death. The older chaperone slept in a cot along the east side of the bed, and the youngest and most adamant of the monkish warrior women along the west side. A maiden-waiting slept by the foot. The head of the bed stood against the wall, several strides separating it from the window by which stood Nilufer's easel. It was through this window, not on the night of the day wherein the princess remonstrated with the witch, but on another night, when the nights had grown warmer, that the bandit Temel came. He scaled the tower as princes have always come to ladies, walking up a white silken rope that was knotted every arm's length to afford a place to rest his feet and hands. He slipped over the window sill and crouched beside the wall, his gloved hands splayed wide as spiders. He had had the foresight to wear white, with a hood and mask covering his hair, and all his face but for his eyes, and so he almost vanished against the marble wall. The guardians did not stir, but Nilufer sat up, dark in her snowy bed, her hair a cold river over her shoulder, her breasts like full moons beneath the silk of her nightgown, and drew a breath to scream. And then she stopped, the breath indrawn, and turned first to the east, and then to the west, where her attendants slumbered. She let the breath out. You are a sorcerer, she told him, sliding her feet from beneath the coverlet. The arches flexed when she touched the cold stone floor. Of a morning her ladies would have knelt by the bed to shoe her. Scorning her slippers, she stood. I am but a bandit, princess, he answered, and stood to sweep a mocking curtsy. When he lifted his head, he looked past a crescent-shaped arrowhead, down the shaft into her black, unblinking eye, downcast properly on his throat rather than his face. She would never see him flinch, certainly not in moonlight, but he felt his eyelids flicker, his cheeks sting, a sharp contraction between his shoulder blades. But you've bewitched my women. Anyone can scribe a spell, he answered modestly, and then continued, and I've come to give you a gift. I do not care for your gifts. She was strong, her arms as straight and oak-white as her bow where they emerged from the arm size of her nightgown did not tremble, though the bow was a killing weapon and no mere toy for a girl. His smile was visible even through the white silk of his mask. This one you will like. No answer. Her head was straight upon the pillar of her neck. Even in the moonlight he could see the whitening of her unprotected fingertips where they hooked the serving. A quarter inch of steady flesh, that was all that stayed his death. He licked his lips, wetting silk. Perhaps I came to see the woman who will one day be Nilufer Khatun. I do not care to be Khatun, Nilufer said. The bandit scoffed. <laughs> what else are you good for? 
Nilufer raised her eyes to his. It was not what women did to men, but she was a princess, and he was only a bandit. She pointed with her gaze past his shoulder to the easel by the window, on which a sheet of paper lay spread to dry overnight. Today's effort, the ideogram for foundation, was far more confident than that for love had been. I want to be a witch, she said, a witch and not a queen. I wish not to be loved, but wise. Tell your bandit lord if he can give me that, I might accept his gift. Only you can give yourself that, your highness, he said, but I can give you escape. He opened his hand and a scrap of paper folded as a bird slipped from his glove. The serving perhaps eased a fraction along the ridges of her fingerprints, but the arrow did not fly. The bandit waited until the bird had settled to the stones before he concluded. And the bandit lord, as you call him, has heard your words tonight. Then the arrow did waver, though she steadied it and trained it on his throat again. Tamil, at her highness's service. Her breath stirred the fletchings. He stepped back and she stepped forward. The grapnel grated softly on the stone, and before she knew it, he was over the sill and descending, almost silently, but for the flutter of slick white silk. Nilufer came to her window and stood there with the string of her long oak-white bow drawn to her nose and to her rosebud lips, her left arm untrembling, the flexed muscles in her right arm raising her stark sinews beneath the skin. The moonlight gilded every pricked hair on her ivory flesh like frost on the hairy stem of a plant. Until the bandit prince disappeared into the shadow of the mountains, the point of her arrow tracked him. Only then did she unbend her bow and set the arrow in the quiver, her women slept on, and crouched to lift the paper bird into her hand. Red paper, red as blood, and slick and hard so that it cracked along the creases. On its wings, in black ink, was written the spell word for flight. Blowing on fingers that stung from holding the arrow drawn so steady, she climbed back into her bed. In the morning, the Kagan's caravan arrived to collect his tithe. The Kagan's emissary was an ascetic, mustached man graying at the temples. The witch said that the emissary and the Kagan had been boys together, racing ponies on the steps. Holun Katun arranged for him to watch the virtuing of the Talus, from whose guts the tribute would be harvested, as a treat. There was no question but that Nilufer would also attend them. They rode out on the Katun's elderly elephant, an extravagance on the dry side of the mountains, but one that a wealthy province could support for the status it conferred. A silk and ivory howdah provided shade, and Nilufer thought sourly that the emissary was blind to any irony, but her face remained expressionless under its coating of powder as her feathered fan flicked in her hand. The elephant's tusks were capped with rubies and with platinum, a rare metal so impervious to fire that even a smelting furnace would not melt the ore. Only the talus could refine it, though once they excreted it, it was malleable and could be easily worked. As the elephant traveled, Nilufer became acquainted with the emissary. She knew he watched her with measuring eyes, but she did not think he was covetous. Rather, she thought more tribute might be demanded than mere stones and gold this time, and her heart beat faster under the cold green silk of her robes. Though her blood rushed in her ears, she felt no warmer than the silk, 
or than the Talus's tumbled jewels. The elephant covered the distance swiftly. Soon enough, they came to the slaughtering ground. The servants who had followed on asses lifted cakes and ices up onto the carpet that covered the elephant's back. Despite its size and power, the slaughter of the Talus was easily done. Taluses could be lured from place to place by laying trails of powdered anthracite mixed with mineral oil. The Talus herders used the same slurry to direct their charges at the rock faces they wished mined, and so the beasts selected for sacrifice would be led to the surface and away from others. A master stonemason, with a journeyman and two apprentices, would approach the grazing Talus and divine the location of certain vulnerable anatomic points. With the journeyman's assistance, the mason would position a pointed wrecking bar of about six feet in length, which the brawny apprentices, with rapid blows of their sledges, would drive into the heart, if such a word is ever appropriate for a construct made of stone, of the talus, such that the beast would then and there almost instantly die. This was a hazardous proceeding, more so for the journeyman, rather trapped between the rock and the hammers, as it were, than the master of the apprentices. Masons generally endeavored to produce a clean, rapid kill for their own safety as well as for mercy upon the beast. The bandits were less humane in their methods, Nilifer knew, but they too got the job done. She licked crystals of ice and beet sugar from her reed straw and watched the tailless die. On the ride back, the emissary made his offer. Nilufer sought Holun Katun in her hall after the emissary had been feted through dinner, after the sun had gone down. Mother, she said, spreading her arms so the pocketed sleeves of her overrobe would sweep like pale gold wings about her, will you send me to Kara Korin? The possibility beat her in her breast. It would mean dangerous travel, overland with a caravan. It would mean a wedding to Tolrul Kanzade, the sixth son of the Kagan, whom Nilufer had never met. He was said to be an inferior horseman, a mere adequate general, far from the favorite son of the Kagan, and unlikely, after him, to be elected Khan of Khans. But the offer had been for a consort marriage, not a morganic concubinage. And if Tolrul Kanzade was unlikely to become Kagan, it was doubly unlikely that when his father died, his brothers would blot out his family stem and branch to preclude the possibility. Holun Katun rose from her cushions, a gold-rimmed china cup of fragrant tea in her right hand. She moved from among her attendants, dismissing them with trailing gestures until only the witch remained, slumped like a shaggy, softly snoring boulder before the brazier. The hall echoed when it was empty. The cartoon paced the length of it, her back straight as the many pillars supporting the arched roof above them. Nilufer fell in beside her, so their steps clicked and their trains shushed over the flagstones. Togrul Kanzade would come here if you were to marry him, said Nilufer's mother. He would come here and rule as your husband. It is what the Kagan wants for him, a safe place for a weak son. Nilufer would have wet her lips with her tongue, but the paint would smear her teeth if she did so. She tried to think on what it would be like to be married to a weak man. She could not imagine. She did not, she realized, have much experience of men. But Holun Katun was speaking again as they reached the far end of the hall and turned. You will not marry Tolgrul Kanzade. It is not possible. 
The spaces between the columns were white spaces. Nilufer's footsteps closed them before and opened them behind as she walked beside her mother and waited for her to find her words. Holun Katun stepped more slowly. Seventeen years ago, I made a bargain with the Kagan before you were born. It has kept our province free, Nilufer. I did what he asked, and in repayment I had his pledge that only you shall rule when I am gone. You must marry, but it is not possible for you to marry his son, any of his sons. Nilufer wore her face like a mask. Her mother's training made it possible, another irony no one but she would ever notice. He does not mean to stand by it. He means to protect a weak son. Holun Katun glanced at her daughter through lowered lashes. Parents will go to great lengths to protect their children. Nilufer made a non-committal noise. Holun Katun caught Nilufer's sleeve, heedless of the paper that crinkled in the sleeve pocket. She said too quickly, Tamil could rise to be Kagan. Nilufer cast a glance over her shoulder at the witch, but the witch was sleeping. They were alone, the princess and her mother. Khan of Khans, she said, too mannered to show incredulity. Tamil is a bandit. Nonetheless, Holun Katun said, letting the silk of Nilufer's raiment slip between her fingers. They say the Kagan was a prince of bandits when he was young. She turned away, and Nilufer watched the recessional of her straight back beneath the lacquered black tower of her hair. The princess folded her arms inside the sleeves of her robes, as if serenely. Inside the left one, the crumpled wings of the red bird pricked her right palm. That night in the tower, Nilufer unfolded the spellbird in the darkness while her attendants slept. For a rushed, breathless moment, her night robes fell about her and she thought that she might suffocate under their quilted weight, but then she lifted her wings and won free, sailing out of the pile of laundry and into the frost-cold night. Her pinions were a blur in the dark as a dancing glimmer drew her. She chased it and followed it down, over the rice paddies where sleepless children watched over the tender seedlings, armed with sticks and rocks so the wild deer would not graze them, over the village where oxen slept on their feet and men slept with their heads pillowed in the laps of spinning women, over the mines where the tailless herders mostly slumbered and the tailless toiled through the night, grinding out their eerie songs. It was to the mountains that it led her, and when she followed it down she found she had lost her wings. If she had been expecting it, she could have landed lightly, for the drop was no more than a few feet. Instead, she stumbled and bruised the soles of her feet on the stones. She stood naked in the moonlight, cold, toes bleeding, in the midst of a rocky slope. A soft, crunching vibration revealed that the mossy thing looming in the darkness beside her was a talus. She set out a hand, both to steady herself on its hide and so it would not roll over her in the dark, and so felt the great sweet chime roll through it when it began to sing. It was early for the mating season, but perhaps a cold spring made the talus fear cold and early winter, and the ground frozen too hard for babies to gnaw. And over the sound of its song she heard a familiar voice as the bandit prince spoke behind her. "'And where is your bow now, Nilufer?' She thought he might expect her to gasp and cover her nakedness, so when she turned, she did it slowly, 
brushing her fingers down the hide of the hulk that broke the icy wind. Temel had slipped up on her and stood only a few arm's length distance, one hand extended, offering a fur-lined cloak. She could see the way the fur caught amber and silver gleams in the moonlight. It was the fur of wolves. Take it, he said. I am not cold, she answered, while the blood froze on the sides of her feet. Eventually, he let his elbow flex and swung the cloak over his shoulder. When he spoke, his breath poised on the air. Even without the cloak, she felt warmer. Something had paused the wind, so there was only the chill in the air to consider. Why did you come, Nilifer? My mother wants me to marry you, she answered, for your armies. His teeth flashed. He wore no mask now, and in the moonlight she could see that he was comely and well-made. His eyes stayed on her face. She would not cross her arms for warmth lest he think she was ashamed and covering herself. We are married now, he said. We were married when you unfolded that paper. For who is there to stop me? There was no paint on her mouth now. She bit her lip freely. I could gouge your eyes out with my thumbs, she said. You'd make a fine bandit prince with no eyes. He stepped closer. He had boots, and the rocks shifted under them. She put her back to the cold side of the talus. It hummed against her shoulders, warbling. You would, he said, if you wanted to. But wouldn't you rather live free, cartoon to a kagan, and collect the tithes rather than going in payment of them? And what of the peace of the khanate? It has been a long time, Tamil, since there was war. The only discord is your discord. What of your freedom from an overlord's rule? My freedom to become an overlord, she countered. He smiled. He was a handsome man. How vast are your armies, she asked. He was close enough now that she almost felt his warmth. She clenched her teeth, not with fear, but because she did not choose to allow them to chatter. In the dark, she heard more singing, more rumbling. Another talus answered the first. Vast enough. He reached past her and patted the rough hide of the beast she leaned upon. There is much of value in a talus. And then he touched her shoulder with much the same affection. Come, princess, he said. You have a tiger's heart, it is so. But I would make this easy. She accepted the cloak when he draped it over her shoulders, and then she climbed upon the talus beside him, onto the great wide back of the ancient animal. There were smoother places there, soft with moss and lichen, and it was lovely to lie back and look at the stars, to watch the moon slide down the sky. This was a feral beast, she was sure, not one of the miners, just a wild thing living its wild, slow existence, singing its wild, slow songs alone and not unhappy in the way such creatures were, and now it would mate. She felt the second talus come alongside, though there was no danger. The talus docked side by side like ships, rather than one mounting the other like an overwrought stallion, and it might have borne young, or fathered them, or however talus worked these things. But the talus would never have the chance. In the morning, Temel would lead his men upon it, and its lichen and moss and bouldery aspect would mean nothing. Its slow, meandering songs and the fire that lay at its heart would be as nothing. It was armies. It was revolution. 
It was freedom from the Khan. He would butcher it for the jewels that lay at its heart and feel nothing. Nilufer lay back on the cold stone, pressed herself to the resonant bulk, and let her fingers curl how they would. Her nails picked and shredded the lichen that grew in its crevices like nervous birds picking their plumage until they bled. Temel slid a gentle hand under the wolf fur cloak, across her belly, over the mound of her breast. Nilufer opened her thighs. She flew home alone, wings in her window, and dressed in haste. Her attendants slept on, still held by the same spell under which she had left them, and she went to find the witch, who crouched beside the brazier, as before, in the empty hall. But now her eyes were open, wide, and bright. The witch did not speak. That fell to Nilofer. She killed my father, Nilofer said. She betrayed my father and my brother, and she slept the Kagan, and I am the Kagan's daughter, and she did it all so that she could be Katun. So you will not marry the Kanzade, your brother? Nilofer felt a muscle twitch along her jaw. That does not seem to trouble the Kagan. You cannot rule unless you marry. The witch settled her shoulders under the scrollofar mass of her cloak. But I can rule as a dowager, Nilofer said, like my mother before me. Yes, the witch said. She thought carefully before she continued. Before I was the witch, she said in a voice that creaked only a little. I was your father's mother. Nilufer straightened her already straight back. She drew her neck up like a pillar. And when did you become a witch and stop being a mother? The witch's teeth showed black moons at the root where her gums had receded. No matter how long you're a witch, you never stop being a mother. Nilufer licked her lips, tasting stone grit and blood. Her feet left red prints on white stone. I need a spell, grandmother, a spell to make a man love a woman in spite of whatever flaw may be in her. Even the chance of another man's child? The witch stood up straighter. Are you certain? Nilufer turned on her cut foot, leaving behind a smear. I am going to talk to the emissary, she said. You will have, I think, at least a month to make ready. Holun Katun came herself to dress the princess in her wedding robes. They should have been red for life, but the princess had chosen white for death of the old life and the Katun would permit her daughter the conceit. Mourning upon marriage, after all, was flattering to the mother. Upon the day appointed, Nilufer sat in her tower, all her maids and warriors dismissed. Her chaperones had been sent away. Other service had been found for her tutors. The princess waited alone while her mother and the men-at-arms rode out in the valley before the palace to receive the bandit prince Temel, who some said would be the next Khan of Khans. Nilufer watched them from her tower window. No more than a bowshot distant, they made a brave sight with banners snapping. But the bandit Prince Temel never made it to his wedding. He had the misfortune to encounter upon that day the entourage and cohort of Togrul Kanzade, sixth son of the Kagan, who was riding to woo the same woman upon her express invitation. Temel was taken in surprise in light armor, his armies arrayed to show peace rather than ready for war. There might have been more of a battle, perhaps even the beginnings of a successful rebellion, 
if Holun Katun had not fallen in the first moments of the battle, struck down by a bandit's black arrow. This evidence of treachery from their supposed allies swayed the old queen's men to obey the orders of the three monkish warrior women who had been allies of the Katun's husband before he died. They entered the fray at the Kanzade's flank. Of the bandit army, there were said to be no survivors. No one mentioned to the princess that the black fletchings were still damp with the ink in which they had been dipped. No one told her that Holun Katun had fallen facing the enemy with a crescent-headed arrow in her back. And when the three monkish warrior women came to inform Nilufer in her tower of her mother's death and found her scrubbing with blackened fingertips at the dark drops spotting her wedding dress, they also did not tell her that the fading outline of a bowstring still lay pressed across her rosebud mouth and the tip of her tilted nose. If she wept, her tears were dried before she descended the stair. Of the dowager queen Nilufer Katun, she who was wife and then widow of Togrul Kanzade, called the Barricade of Heaven for his defense of his father's empire from the bandit hordes at the foothills of the Steelies of the Sky, history tells us little. Little, but that she died old. The line between obligation and desire tends to be where a lot of fiction stakes its claim. That instant conflict between personal desire and societal duty is something that unites stories as diverse as the Master and Commander series, Romeo and Juliet, and of course, this one. Because when it comes down to it, that conflict, that choice is one that unites us all. There are things we all want to do, things we think we all need to do, and don't. Why? Because we're not allowed. Because it didn't look bad, if not for us, then for the people we're supposed to respect, to look up to. We each sit inside our own unique little boxes, which, yes, are frequently made out of tiki-taki, and do our best to do the right thing, to be good citizens. Sometimes we're rewarded for that. Most of the time we're ignored for it, and sometimes we are brutally, unfairly punished. So we find our ways out of the boxes, ways to either get what we want anyway, or sometimes push back. If we're lucky, then we manage it. We're not lucky. We spend the rest of our lives clinging on to the dwindling fires of our brief, transitory, revenge-based victory. Fires which aren't enough and never, ever will be. At times like those, we cross too far over the line into the territory that lies beyond, and that territory, that country, is where tragedy lives. And no one wants to live there. Podcastle relies on you to pay our authors and cover our costs, so if you like this story, please go to podcastle.org and click on our PayPal link. Each donation keeps us going, and each donation means you help us directly. So thank you in advance. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. And Podcastle is on its way to the stately Pleasure Dome, recently erected by Kubla Khan, because he's got Modern Warfare 2 on Xbox. Thanks, Al. Let's do some feedback for Podcastle 88, Tim Pratt's Another End of the Empire. A story about an evil overlord who takes a progressive approach to prophecy. Response to this one was incredibly positive, complimenting both Pratt's funny story and Cheyenne Wright's amazing reading. C. Duggar called it the best Podcastle ever. 
Boyd Minashi said, I like that Morgash was so genre savvy and used that knowledge to get around standard fantasy tropes. Of course, he still ended up being right. Anything he tried to do to prevent his downfall only caused it to happen, but at least he was thinking outside the box. LaShawn said, I read this story in Strange Horizons, so when it popped up in my playlist, I knew immediately what would happen. What stayed my hand from pushing the fast-forward button was Wright's portrayal of Morgash. Hilarious, fun, and instantly drew me in. Wright pushed it over the top with his narration and had me grinning all the way through. Speaking of Cheyenne Wright, we found out a little earlier that he had an unexpected trip to the hospital. He seems to be doing fine now, but he's a freelance artist and he doesn't have medical insurance. Cheyenne not only narrated this story for us, but he's been a big contributor to narrations, especially for Pseudopod. He's also the colorist for the Hugo Award-winning comic Girl Genius. If you visit girlgeniusonline.com slash info slash donate slash php, they're offering exclusive wallpaper to reward donations, so if you can, check it out. He's given a lot to escape artists. If you have any desire to help him out, I urge you to go ahead and check out the link. We'll post it in our show notes. Our sponsor this week is Audible.com. If you like this week's story, might I suggest checking out T.A. Pratt's ass-kicking bad girl of sorcery, Marla Mason. There's four titles to choose from, Blood Engines being the first, but for some reason I'm kind of partial to Poison Sleep. still need to check out the last two. Any of those four Marla Mason titles can be a free audiobook download if you go to www.audiblepodcast.com castle. That about wraps it up for this week's episode. Don't forget the Podcastle Flash Fiction Contest opens April 1st. You can find all the details for that over at our forum at forum.escapeartist.net. And, if you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and using the handy-dandy PayPal button there to donate. That way, our authors don't have to sift through Talus excrement for their pay, and everyone's favorite podcastle is spared from banded uprisings. Thanks very much for letting all of us here at Podcastle tell you another story. We'll catch you all in a week with our very first full-length Podcastle original. Until then, enjoy the soothing vibrations of those nearby living rocks, and we'll see you all next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Elizabeth I said, I would rather be a beggar and single than a queen and married. <laughs>